You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Mark Pryor about Die Around Sundown. Mark is a former newspaper reporter and felony prosecutor, originally from England but now living in Austin, Texas. He is the author of the Hugo Marston mystery series set in Paris, London, and Barcelona. Mark is also the author of the psychological thrillers Hollow Man and its sequel, Dominic. As a prosecutor, he appeared on CBS News' 48 Hours and Discovery Channel's Discovery ID, Cold Blood. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. Welcome, Mark. How are you today? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much. How are you? I am fantastic as well, and I'm thrilled to pieces that we're going to chat because I am a longtime fan of yours, so this is just wonderful to finally get to chat with you. Well, you're very kind. Thank you. So this is a departure for you, going in a different direction, looking back in time a little bit more than you normally do. So why don't we start out with you talking about Die Around Sundown, for those that won't have read it yet. Just give me a quick synopsis. Sure. So Die Around Sundown is uh, it's set in Paris, so that's not too much of a departure, my favorite place. But it's set in Paris in 1940, uh, right after the Germans have moved into the city, and the city's sort of not exactly welcomed them, but not exactly fought them off. The story begins when my hero, Henri Lefort, is called into his boss's office uh, and assigned a murder case. He is asked or required to investigate the murder of a German officer in the Louvre Museum. And he's given a very short period of time to do it because the Germans want this solved before Adolf Hitler comes in for a surprise visit a week later. So how did you come up with this entire storyline? I was completely fascinated. And you're right, Paris is no departure for you, but going back to Nazi-occupied Paris is a totally different thing for you. And that's such an interesting time period. So I just want to hear all about how it all came about. Yeah, so I've always wanted to, I've always been fascinated by the First and Second World Wars. Um, and so that means, you know, I've always wanted to set a book there. But I felt like there were, there were people doing good things and I concentrated on Hugo for a while. But, if, but eventually, I, I just, I really had to do it. And of course, it gives me great pleasure to kill off Nazis. So I didn't have any issue doing that in the Louvre Museum. 
But I like the idea of a detective working, having to do his job at a time where there are so many other stresses, so many other problems, and having to solve the murder of somebody that, quite frankly, he has no issue with being dead. The Louvre Museum was the perfect place because as I was doing my research, I discovered that the Germans did, in fact, close it for a while as they did the, the theaters and the cinemas. And, and sort of as, as an aside, the story was not something I had, uh, the particular facts, the plot was not something I had in my head, but it kind of evolved as I did my research and I saw openings such as uh, putting a body in the, in the museum. Because what that's allowed me to do is place another obstacle in front of Henri when he is told, this is where the person was killed, you may not visit. Um, and of course, the reason no one's allowed in is that the Germans were busy looting. Uh, another obstacle for him, like I say, but also an interesting historical take and something to write about. I didn't realize until I read your book that the Louvre had been closed to French residents for a while. So that was an interesting fact to learn. And then I loved the idea of this murder where he couldn't actually go in and investigate the murder scene. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the investigation from the Germans' perspective is something of a farce. The guy who makes him do this hands him out a list of suspects and says, these are the people, one of these guys probably did it, find out which one. And for any policeman, particularly somebody who has some pride in their work, that's unacceptable. But he doesn't keep his investigations to that. So, uh, you know, like I said before, the, the keeping him out of the museum is, is, makes life difficult for him. But in some ways, it inspires him too, because he's, he's like, damn them, I'm going to do my job, no matter how hard they make it. But you do a great job of reminding the reader that he does have these external pressures that you wouldn't normally have when you're trying to solve a crime. Like his head will be on the chopping block if he doesn't figure out how to solve it. And he's given a very limited time. He is. He is. And that, and that, I think, creates an interesting dilemma for him because at one point in the book, he sort of realizes that it, it's this threat to him. It's a, it's a first, right? If a detective in, in his world or our world today doesn't solve a crime, there's no real consequences for that. Maybe some bad headlines, uh, demotion possibly. But here he's facing some uncertain demise, probably. Whatever it is, it's going to be hugely unpleasant. And so he has this new challenge to work with this directive with this consequence hanging over his head. And that sort of kind of opens a door for him to take the easy way out and actually blame somebody on the list, not find the real killer. So one of the dilemmas that he faces is, you know, does he save his own neck and maybe blame an innocent person? Or does he do his job and, and take whatever comes? I liked that. And I thought you did a great job of keeping that kind of refreshed throughout the story, reminding the reader that there are all sorts of dilemmas and he's trying to figure out how best to balance it all. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's when, when you live under the threat like that, I think it is a constant thing in the back of your mind. And of course, he has his, we'll call her close acquaintance, Nicola, to, to worry about as well. He's responsible for this other human being, which is another reason why saving his own neck is paramount, preferably by finding the right killer, but maybe maybe by not. Well, what do you think it is about Nazi-occupied Paris that appeals so much to both authors and readers? Um, well, that's a great question. I think, f for me, the idea that a great military power who had recently won a world war essentially lays down arms and allows mortal enemy to come marching in and take over. It's hard to comprehend, 
and leads to many other consequences that are unusual for war. People often ask me why I set my books in Paris and why I love Paris. One of the real reasons is that they did exactly that. They laid down arms and uh, as a result of that, Paris was forever saved from, from destruction. And the beautiful city that we have today is, is there as a direct result of that. And I think people appreciate that. I think there's, there's also the idea that Paris, you know, is a major city of, of art and culture and beauty is now occupied by the moral opposite of that. And I think there's, there's, there's a lot of interest too in, in seeing how Parisians lived, how they got by, how they survived, contrasting that with the Germans. The, the, one of the words that the French used for the Germans was mange tout, which in French means eat everything. Because <laughs> they did. They did. And it's, it's the name of a what in England anyway, we call the snap pea, that where you eat the whole pod. Uh, and, and so the Germans are helping themselves to everything from bread and wine to art from the Louvre. And meanwhile, Parisians are waiting in line and, and rationed and suffering. So I think there's a stark contrast there. But there's also a stark contrast between Paris, that period, and other parts of Europe where there was actual fighting going on. Either in this book or the, or the sequel, I read, Henri kind of notes to himself, like, as bad as this is, in other, in other places, it's a lot worse. I guess that's true. I, the part that always sticks with me, and I love World War II, so I have read a zillion books set there, and I love Paris, so, you know, I always try to focus on that's why your books appeal to me and why I'm so interested in that time period. But the idea that you are living in an occupied city and the atrocities that the Nazis were daily exacting on the people living in Paris, you know, so it wasn't like you're just occupied, but you're occupied by these people who are happy to just shoot you in the street if you're five minutes past curfew, or if they think you've stolen something, or if you're Jewish, or whatever, you know, they feel you've crossed the line for. So that that's one aspect of it, like what it would be like to live like that every single day. I just, I can't imagine. And then on top of it, not knowing exactly what everyone else around you was doing. I mean, many people were working for the resistance, but you don't necessarily know that. And that even is in your book, you know? And so you, you can't really always judge what people are doing on the face of what they're doing. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And and sort of, I, I find it really interesting that in the beginning, and this is going to be really interesting to develop as a writer for, for the series, in the beginning, you know, there was bread, there was food, there, there were things for the French to eat and life was different, obviously, but not not hugely. The the horrors came a little later, and they came gradually. To begin with, the the Germans were polite and uh, tried to act like tourists to some degree. And I think to some degree, the French people, the Parisians, they obviously resented their their presence. But they, the the hostility that came later didn't really manifest at that point. I think it, it took a while for both sides to kind of figure out how to live with each other and which way they were going. And, and it pretty quickly became clear they were going to drift apart. But yeah, then, then the small, small moments of resistance that pop up, which obviously becomes a groundswell. But it's a, a real changing scenario, I guess, for, for Parisians who think maybe they can carry on with their normal lives, but then start doing things Small things, graffiti, maybe printing posters uh, to oppose their their invaders. It's it's 
it makes you wonder what you would do. It totally makes you wonder what you would do. And it also makes you just wonder how quick you'd be to judge those around you when you weren't exactly sure what they were doing. You know, in terms of some people, obviously, everybody's going to look like they're living with the occupation unless they want to be, you know, tortured or dealing with the Gestapo or whatever it is. But, you know, realizing there are probably a lot of people behind the scenes doing a lot more than it looks like they're doing. I just think it would be such an interesting but terrifying time period to live through. Yeah. And, and the question becomes for Henri and for other people, what does it mean to not just acquiesce right. to, to these people, but to collaborate? At some point, somebody points out to him, dude, you're working for these people. You are actively working for these people. And I think that comes as quite a surprise to him. There's, there's no greater divorce in his mind than Henri Lefort and Nazis. But the reality is he is working for them. He is doing their bidding. Uh, and I think that's true for a lot of people, uh, from, from everybody who pours a cup of coffee for a, for a German at a cafe, to people who are more actively collaborating by turning in resistance people. It's not black and white. It's certainly not. Well, what kind of research did you have to do? Because it is set in Paris during World War II, but you also deal a fair amount with World War I. So did you have to spend a lot of time researching? I, I did a lot of reading. And actually, those, those First World War stories uh, have an interesting origin in that when I, uh, I grew up in England uh, on a farm in the, in the countryside just outside London, uh, and all my family lived in our village, and my grandparents had a gardener, old boy named Joe Wallace. And as he got older and, and couldn't work any longer, he became ill, and he didn't have anybody who could take him in in the village. So uh, mum and dad took him in and, and gave him a spare room. A spare room. and he ended up, you know, passing away at our house. But in the weeks before that, I would occasionally take him a cup of tea to his room and he would tell me stories from the First World War. He had signed up as a 15-year-old and, and been sent to the trenches. Wow. So, yeah, it's, it's some, he had some incredible stories. And at least two of the stories in Die Around Sundown come directly from him, from his experiences, uh, from what he told me 40-plus years ago. And I kind of like that. I kind of like that, that, you know, a gardener named Joe Wallace inspired books that, that people are reading more than 100 years later. Well, one of the things I liked so much about Die Around Sundown was I liked the mystery set during World War II, but I really liked the flashbacks as well, Henri's story and how it developed. And there's some twists and turns that obviously I will not spoil. But they were great, and I couldn't wait for my husband to read it, who he loved it as well as I did, and then to be able to talk about it. I was like, what do you think of that? What do you think of this? But I thought those World War I stories were fabulous, and that's really interesting now to learn that they are actually true, or at least based on your gardener's experiences. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's super cool. And initially, actually, when I wrote the book, I wrote the book right before COVID, and like a lot of my writer friends, during COVID, I was unable to create anything new. So I, I gave the book to my agent, and originally it had, I'd written it in two distinct timelines, jumping back and forth. And she said, you know, this is good, but I think, I think it, that the, the past needs to be woven into the present in a different way. Uh, and that's when I came up with, quite by chance, Princess Marie Bonaparte, who is the person who brings out his story. I loved Mimi. I thought she was great. <laughs> I did too. And, and like I say, it was total chance. I, during research, it was just one of those 
portals into the past that you come across. Um, I read a little bit about her. And for anybody who's not familiar with, with her, she is the great-great-grandniece of um, the little emperor himself, born into privilege and wealth and supposed to do all the things that a rich woman was supposed to do back then, which is to find a suitable husband and behave herself. And she did not do that. She found a husband but didn't care much for that kind of life, never had children, was incredibly intelligent, very, very strong-willed, and became friends with Freud. Sigmund Freud. And she's actually the one who helped him escape the Nazis in Austria. And so her interest in psychoanalysis, as they called it then, was a natural fit for someone to draw out these the secrets from someone like Henri, who does not want to tell them and has to be bribed to do so. And your pacing on that was really so well done. And that was one of my questions for you, because the information came out at just the right time each time. And then I was like, wait a minute. And I had to kind of go back and rewind and think through a bunch of the interactions to determine like whether and determine I should have seen it, but I didn't see it. Like that's just the best way when it's done that way. Did that take a lot of work? <laughs> it actually did. This is the book that I've, I think is the most intricate of those that I've written. I'm sure it is. I know it is. Uh, that took the most planning, uh, the most careful execution. And, and the most rewriting, because you're right, I, I had to reveal certain things at certain times in a certain order to, to keep the pace up, to make the story make sense. And it's sort of hard to explain without getting into the details, which we don't want to do. But it was a challenge. It, it really was. And I, I loved it. And, and Mimi grew into such an important character in that book that, as far as I'm concerned, she's a, she's a mainstay for the series. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that because I just loved her. But that concept of the twists and turns and the reveals, you know, that's so hard to do. And it's hard to do it where people don't see it coming. But then as soon as it happens, you're like, oh, of course. And so I just, I really love that. And it didn't happen once. It happened at least twice, if not three times, I think. And so I just was like, oh my goodness. And I it just really, I finished the book and I thought, I absolutely loved this one. <laughs> Thank you. It's hard. It's hard to get that balance between seeding enough clues so that when the twist comes, people are like, oh, that makes sense, rather than have it come out of the blue where it's just uh, just contrived. And then it's annoying because you're like, okay, wh where did that come from? So no, I agree. But on the other hand, if it's so spoon-fed that you're like, oh, I saw that coming from page 10, then it's not quite as much fun. So you know, it's really great when it happens and you're like, ah, now I understand. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I did, you know, obviously I have help from my agent to, to uh, add clues or take some out and from a couple of uh, writer friends who are kind enough to give me their feedback. But that's, I, guess, I suppose that's the art of the, the mystery novel is striking that balance correctly. And I can see where fresh eyes would be very helpful with that because you get so immersed in the story yourself that it's hard to kind of piece it all together for the first time again because you, you can't. So instead to have somebody else look at it and say, okay, yes, this reads right. Oh, I think you give too much away here. Or you're not giving away enough, whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. Because of course I know what's coming. Right. And I know how, how I'm getting there. But if, if the fresh pair of eyes is crucial to, yeah, to let me know if I'm laying it on too thick or if it's too much of a shock. Yeah. No, I agree. That makes perfect sense. Well, who did you enjoy writing the most and who did you enjoy writing the least? And the least may not be that you really didn't enjoy writing them so much as they might have been harder. Henri's voice is very new to me. I enjoyed writing him the most. 
he is rude to people who deserve to be rude to. Uh, and I've said this at a couple of events. It's it's if you have a character with a bit of sass, you you often have to tone it down because it seems unrealistic if he's overly rude just for the sake of it, to, just to get a laugh or what have you. But the people that Henri is is churlish with, well, they're Nazis, right? I mean, he can, he can be as rude as he wants and offensive as he wants. And we're all going to be like, yep, keep going. We don't like those people. So he was a lot of fun to write. I think Mimi is, is a harder character to write uh, because I'm not a 1920s rich woman, French woman. So it's, it's getting her voice right was harder. Particularly a lot of, most of her scenes were with Henri and it was so natural for me to slip into his character that it was a conscious effort to, to pull myself out and present her the way I think she, she would have been. And what about Picasso? Because he plays a role as well. Was it difficult to write on his behalf? Yeah, in some ways when, I mean, I like to, to bring real characters, real people in, into books, especially historical stuff. I've, I've, I've finished the second novel and I've done it again there with a different historical figure. I think it's fun because it, it brings alive people that we put on such a high pedestal that we don't almost don't in, imagine interacting with them. So we don't know what they'd be like on a normal day just going about their business. Uh, and in a way that makes it easier for me because if no one's imagined it and then they read it, they can't tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun. It's, it, it's, it's, it, it's fun to do that. I, did, I wouldn't want to overdo it. But why not? I mean, he was there. He was around. He would have seen all these things happening and he would have had feelings and a response just the way everybody else would have. So it seems, it seems okay and fun to, to take advantage of that and, and make him a character. Oh, absolutely. I love when people like that show up. I was more just asking if it was daunting to try to inhabit somebody who is so well-known. But your point is great that he is well-known as an artist and his art is well-known, but certainly his day-to-day -day life is not well-known to many people. Yeah, I mean, he's almost a, a fictional figure in some senses. We can recognize his paintings or read a bit about him in books, but but yeah, we don't we don't know what he was like on a day to day basis, and so I think I have a lot of leeway that way to to create my own version of Picasso. I don't mess with the art; I wouldn't dare do that. But just him on a daily basis, I think is is it's okay to do. Yes, especially since he was there during that time period. It's interesting to weave him into the story. Yeah, and, and you know, I've been asked how much research I did into his whereabouts and what have you. And I'll tell you that I like to get things right historically, but I'm not going to obsess over some small details. I mean, it's possible that somebody could uh, research him and, and tell me that actually he was sick that day or, <laughs> you know, wasn't, you know, popped out of town or whatever. Uh, and I'm not too worried about that. Generally speaking, he was, he was there for, for that period. And, and like I say, would have experienced what everybody else did and had reac reactions and responses to those things. Well, absolutely. And you're certainly not advocating that you've written a biography of Picasso. So yes, I think weaving him into the story works very well. Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I mean, I, it's, it's interesting to me that people can suspend disbelief for the creation of all these other characters uh, and there's the, the deaths of some of these characters, but then might get hung up on some <laughs> small factual point that probably could also use a bit of suspending of disbelief. Absolutely. 
Well, I'm always fascinated with titles and covers, and I was happy as I was reading your book to see where the title came from. But let's talk a little bit about, was Die Around Sundown always the title? And how did you settle on that? And then your cover is stunning. Thank you. Yes. I, that, as soon as they sent me that cover, I was just like, wow, that, that's fantastic. The only, the only change I asked for was that initially the, the, the man on the cover did not have a fedora. So they put one on for me, <laughs> which was great. So I listened to a lot of music while I'm writing. I go to coffee shops. I have this odd mix of wanting to be around people, but not wanting to hear them. I have this misophonia that, that the book addresses. Oh, you do? I do. I was curious about that. And I saw it in the dedication that you dedicated the book to all fellow sufferers of misophonia and all fellow sufferers should have probably indicated to me that you had it. Will you talk a little bit about that before we talk more about the cover and the title? Yeah, of course. It's a something that's a condition that's only recently really been recognized and, and written about. Uh, and the way I explain it is, is this. I mean, if you ask anybody, everybody will tell you, oh, I have sounds that I can't stand. I know people make certain noise, I can't stand it. But the way I explain it is to say, you know, my wife is a vegetarian, so uh, she doesn't like the taste of meat, so she doesn't eat meat. Um, she had to eat meat, she would not like it. Likewise for fish. So, uh, however, if you gave my mother certain seafood, not only would she not like it, but she would have an allergic reaction and her throat would swell up. Uh, this is the sound version of that. So, while yes, everybody has certain noises that irritate them, people with misophonia have intense physical, physiological responses to certain noises, raised heart rates, feelings of anger, rage. It, it's it's a not a great thing to have. <laughs> no, it does not sound like it. Because you can't always control your environment. At least with food allergies, you can most of the time be like, okay, I'm not going to eat seafood. But it's harder to control the noise around you. Yeah. I mean, I was at a, a theater thing that my one of my kids was doing when she was six or seven. And there was a little kid behind me rustling his uh, chip packet endlessly, it seemed to me. And my wife had to basically kick me out of the theater before I throttled a five-year-old <laughs> for eating chips. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. But you're right, we can't, we can't help it. I mean, it, it, we adjust. If my, my wife is eating an apple or carrots or typing, then I leave the room or I wear headphones. Unfortunately, my youngest also has it. And we just had to pull her out of high school as a result and do online school. Oh, wow. Which is really bad because she's a very social person. Oh, yeah. But she just could not focus with all those noises. It's just, it's just, it's not something you can just get over or deal with or ignore. It is, it is a physiological bodily response. Um, and now she's happy and able to work from home. Well, at least there was some way you could adapt for her. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. In some ways, a lot of people can't. We're lucky in that we can make accommodations. And you know, I've told people at work and, and no one chews gum around me <laughs> on pain of death. They're like, I do not want to have him coming after me because I'm chewing gum. Exactly. Exactly. And people generally, if you tell them, are actually very kind and respectful of it once you explain what it is. But it's, it's you feel like you're burdening somebody else to constantly have to ask other people to change their behavior to suit you. So it's very difficult, which is why we, we pulled the little one out of school because we didn't feel like we could constantly ask her teachers or her classmates to stop clicking pens or typing so loud or whatever it was. So I know in Henri's case, 
the reaction to the sound, some of them are tied back to things he experienced. But in your case, it sounds like it's just certain sounds that drive you crazy that they aren't necessarily tied to something that happened. That's right. And that's, that's part of the exploration for Henri in the book is, is this a lifelong physiological thing that he has or is it PTSD? PTSD, exactly. Uh, they don't, of course, call it that. Right. And that's something that, that Mimi, as a psychoanalyst, is very interested in exploring as well. And I, I think even today, the treatments for it, and there are counseling treatments and even hypnotherapy you can do to try and fix it. Some of those do focus on, you know, are there historical things that you've, you've suffered or been through that, that help exacerbate this issue? Hmm. That's fascinating, truly. Yeah, and it's nice to, I wanted to, to recognize, I want to help when you, when you have something like this and it's not well known. It's really nice to be able to bring it out a little bit more into the open. Um, I'm actually doing an interview with the uh, Misophonia podcast later in the year about the book, and it's nice to bring some awareness to to what a condition that a lot of people suffer from. Absolutely. And fiction is such a great way to do that because you're telling this very compelling story and just weaving that through it. Yeah. And I had to remind myself sometimes uh, of uh, that, that Henri was a sufferer and, and throw things in there. And in doing so, I realized that a lot of the things that, say, trigger myself or my daughter didn't exist back then. Like the typing. Like that, the, yeah, there's, there's no uh, computer keyboards. There are no pens to click. Right. There, there was gum. I know that. So you're having to think of the things that he would be surrounded by. Yeah. I mean, in the second book, I start the very first chapter of the, of the sequel. Uh, he goes into the movie theater uh, he wants some, you know, he's got some time off and he wants to see a movie. And uh, one of the first things he does is exactly what, what I do. My, unfortunately, my daughter's stopped going to the theater altogether. But I go to the back left or back right corner and take that corner seat because it's worse to have somebody behind me than in front of me. And that's something that Henri does. And he ends up getting thrown out of the movie theater because some kid is tapping his foot against the wooden leg of the chair. So, yeah, I, I managed to find things to get him in trouble. <laughs> well, I can't wait to read the second one. I'm so excited there's another one coming. Yeah, me too. It's, it's going to be out, I think, next August. So it'll be a, a year's wait. I'll keep an eye out. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. Oh, good question. So right now I'm reading uh, Razorblade Tears, um, having read Blacktop Wasteland by uh, S.A. Cosby. I loved it and finally getting around to his second book, which I'm really enjoying. I recently read uh, Eric Larson's book about Churchill. I read everything that that man writes. He's phenomenal. Me too. <laughs> but, you know, with the, with the kids, with the daytime job and, and the writing, it's, uh, it's hard to find too much time to read. But I, I do it when I can in the bathtub. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for joining me today in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. As I've mentioned several times, I love to die around sundown, and it was really fun to get to chat about it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm very grateful. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far 
in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate your taking the time to listen to my podcast. I want to quickly share about this wonderful company I am now partnering with. I am always looking for entities that promote and highlight books and recently came across book clubs, a company who provides all sorts of resources for established and new book clubs, as well as individual readers. My own personal book club recently signed up on book clubs, and the group has been impressed with all of the great tools the site and app provide. The book club's website is linked in my show notes, and I hope you will check them out soon. Also, if you like my show, I would be so grateful if you would tell everyone you know about it and rate it on whichever platform you listen on. It truly makes a huge difference and really helps the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and that link is also in the show notes. I hope you will check out some other Thoughts from a Page episodes and have a great day. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.